You're listening to Hey guys, welcome back to First of All, a real unfiltered conversation on career, family, relationships, and culture. I'm your host, Minji Chang, and thanks so much for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you're doing well, staying safe, staying sane, and staying healthy. Please, for the love of God, wear a mask, social distance, and help out your neighbors how you can by social distancing and wearing a mask, and be a good human being. (laughs) which in America seems to be kind of a tall order these days. And it's driving me a little bit crazy, more so than usual, because the absurdity of these anti-maskers makes my brain melt. Um, I have, I'm trying to do my best to be as compassionate as possible to like understand where they're coming from. But at the end of the day, strongly, severely, vehemently against all that they're arguing. It is ludicrous. It is entitled. It is a waste of time. It is harmful to others. Stop it. Wear a mask and or just don't go outside. Um, so it's a it's a small ask compared to what it is doing impact-wise to the safety and health of others. Okay? Um, pretty sure if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not a person that doesn't. I don't know. I'm making assumptions. But um, if you're not, if you've been lax about it, I'm really asking you. Yes, you directly. You who are pointing at yourself and going, me? Yeah, you. Please wear a mask. Anyway, I'm really excited about this week's episode, not because the the subject itself is, you know, an exhilarating topic, but it's something that is really, really meaningful and I think important in terms of society at large, um, humanity, mental health, physical health, and something that is surrounded by a lot of stigma and guilt and shame and therefore doesn't get a lot of discussion in a public space uh, between normal human beings, people who are not like clinicians. Um, And this week we're talking about addiction. And I have a really wonderful conversation with my friend Janice Ho. And Janice is a Korean-Canadian who's based in Toronto. And she is formerly a researcher in the criminal justice field. And she currently freelances in marketing and communication. She does copy editing and research. Um, and she also hosts a podcast called The Soul's Work Podcast, where she discusses personal experiences and lessons learned from her self-development journey. So um, Janice, I got to meet through my Patreon support group and I love her so much. And I just appreciate her willingness and her vulnerability to walk me through her addiction to alcohol and how that's played out in COVID, not just COVID times, but even prior to that and where she's hoping to go forward. Um, because again, this is a very loaded topic and addiction is something for a lot of you know, normal citizens like myself to have some level of familiarity in terms of knowing that it exists, but not knowing how it necessarily works or how deeply it can affect all of our lives, right? So not only the person who has the addiction, but the people who care about that person and who have to deal with it. Um, It is something very real. And I don't know the numbers or data, but I do think given modern times, I really wouldn't be surprised if we are 
a more addicted society than before because there's so many things to be addicted to. Um, I'm really fascinated by like the dopamine dopamine kick that we get from like all of our social media, uh, all the alerts and bells and whistles that are vying for our attention. Like literally, I think, you know, people didn't like Steve Jobs admit that like he wouldn't even want to give his kid an iPhone. Anyway, there's more to discuss, but we're starting with addiction to alcohol and the general starting conversation around it. Uh, And so I do ask that everybody tuning in, y'all are my tribe and I love you. And just putting that extra emphasis to be open-minded and be compassionate and have grace because it is not easy to talk about stuff like this. And again, I really thank Janice for for doing that. And um, all of us moving forward, I think it's just become all the more apparent for us to be open, to listen, and to think deeply about things before forming, you know, a strong conclusion or opinion. And um, in that way, we'll continue to do really important work to resolve these issues, however they impact our lives. Okay, so just putting that disclaimer out there um, and also want to warn people that apologetically, the audio in this is kind of subpar. I'm really sorry. My usual audio setup, um, (laughs) I just didn't export things correctly. So I'm really sorry. And thank you to Marvin, my producer, who salvaged as much as he could. But the audio quality is going to be a little bit less than usual in this episode. So I apologize. I'm sorry. And I'll I'll be better about making sure I save and export my files more vigilantly from now on. Love, Minji. Uh, also, please, uh, you know, I hope I'm really happy to hear that people are enjoying these episodes, especially during the coronavirus era, and not to take away from what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there still are so many important fights that are happening right now in terms of justice for Breonna Taylor, for Elijah McClain, which is like the the newest horrific thing to learn about. So um, yeah, I just really encourage people who who are in this fight um, with the Black community and just the fight in general for equality in general for the LGBTQ plus community that we just had Pride Month that I feel like really just flew by. Um Please, let's all do our part, you know, big or little, to help keep these movements alive. And even though the intense, you know, media frenzy might be kind of dissipating around it, we can all do our part to stay to stay on the job, right? And to tag each other as teammates to, to do the work and to remind everybody that we can all do something, even if that's not monetary, it's even a matter of social media or signing a petition or calling... Uh, a local government office or whatever, whatever it is that you can do, please continue to do that work. And thank you to everybody who's been doing their part. Again, whatever your motion was, really, really thank you. And without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this episode with Janice. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing responses on this. Here is Facing Addiction with Janice Ho. Hello, Miss Janice. Hello, Miss Minji. 
How are you doing? (laughs) I'm all right. I'm all right. As you know, this is a ride. (laughs) Oh, you know, it's just a (laughs) general uh, unraveling of of our our world. And that is so sad that that actually is a literal thing. Um, Yeah, I'm doing okay. I've been overall positive, you know, and thank, bless your heart. I've been so happy to talk to you more and hang out with you on our weekly hangouts for Patreon. Those are so nice. Are they? It's just like big, it's so therapeutic, right? But sometimes we just rant and sometimes we're like laughing. Oh, that's all we need. And it's cool because like everybody brings in their own unique personality and vibe. And <laughs> we just, we're like a whole like cast of characters. So it's cool. Everybody's really nice there. So, hey, if y'all are listening, you might want to support Minji on Patreon and come oh, join the you. fun. <laughs> thank you. I love how we turned this into a plug. No, <laughs> Always. Genuinely been, uh, it's it's so weird that we've already had so many of them and we had many discussions on like, how time feels so warped mm-hmm. and bizarre because some days it just feels so eternal, but then it's also passing quickly. And now we're yeah. you know, towards the end of May and you're just like, what is happening right now? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have done my very brief, you know, hype woman intro of you. <laughs> just like, you know, always want to set the context of the conversation and, and, you know, I'm still getting to know you, which has been so wonderful. But, like, do you want to just give the synopsis of who Janice is? Who I am. Well, first of all, I'm Canadian. So I'm, like, honored in general to be here. And then the honored doubly to be here as Canadian. Because I don't know how many Canadian guests you've had on your show. Not too many. Uh, uh-huh. You, you might, I, I, gen- I have no memory at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I am from Canada. I'm from Toronto, born and raised. Um, and I don't know what what should I say. I am a freelancer. I've been doing that for about three years. Everything from um, marketing and communications to research to writing, copy editing, project management. Um, but my first career was actually doing research in the criminal justice field, which I did for about eight years. And um, I was previous to um, the shit hitting the fan. I was digital nomading and sort of traveling around Costa Rica, Panama. I was in uh, California for a few weeks. Your stomping grounds, Cupertino. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I went to Mexico and I was supposed to be in Mexico until mid-April when I was going to come back because my health insurance was running out at that point. Um, But 10 days into Mexico was when we were pretty much getting called back home. And uh, I just flew back over and here I am. My goodness. Yeah, that's when we last, that's when we first checked in when all the, everything was happening. Yes. We were in Cupertino at the time. So that already feels like lifetimes ago. And you've had quite a journey since then, getting situated, figuring out how to basically pivot and uh, just drop all your plans of all this international Mm. travel to be back in Toronto, um, which is just crazy. And so in the short amount of time that we've been able to have these weekly talks, I've definitely recognized your resilience as a person. Mm. I mean, it's it's not just anybody that can be like, I mean, everybody's going through it right now, right? Inversions. And it's just having everything be an upheaval and just figure it out. Totally. It's a yeah. survival skill. And so I really want to just commend you on air for that because that's Thank really you. admirable. 
I appreciate it. And, you know, I think maybe similar to you, because I feel like I've heard you say this before, but the stuff that I was going through in the few months um, before any of this happened, I was already going through a ton of grief. Um, My last breakup was so, so painful. And um, just having to live through that, I think almost sort of mentally prepared me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Girl. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Ain't it great? I mean, I think that's a, that's a, and and I'm not trying to make light of your pain. It's just like, you know, you and I know we've commiserated on this. It is, um, it's a whole other type of turmoil and it's a whole other type of appeal if you will but there is a silver lining like you're saying you know to to recognize that there was some level of preparation you had to deal with another significant thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean like it's even that much more because you're already in one of the most painful situations you can be dealing with which is heartbreak right 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 so my heart goes out to you and I mean, I'm just so glad of how about how you and I have been able to get to know each other, but also how we've opened up about really tough topics, right? And um, that's something that has become kind of a trademark of this podcast that I want to be able to go into dark spaces or to talk about harder things that are very layered and complex or very deep, right? Um, and, yeah, and just be able to do. share that with the world, right? And like, that's where you and I have connected because we can have these one-on-one conversations in private and that is incredibly important. And I'm not trying to make that small in any way, but it's, it's different to open up about extremely private challenges in a public manner, because inherently like that's kind of like why we were so moved to talk about this topic, which is addiction um, in a public format, because it's a common thing that a lot of different people struggle with either personally or within like their families or friends or relationships. And there's so much baggage with that, that it's hard to just talk about that openly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like addiction is kind of that leprous cousin that we like stuff in the attic and we know it's there and we hear, you know, them like walking around upstairs while we politely like sit at the dinner table and, but we just don't want to face it. Like it is such a stigmatized, like difficult, challenging topic to talk about. And it's a shame because it is so friggin' prevalent mm-hmm. in our society. So I love, like, thank you for opening up this conversation here. And this is why I love your podcast. And I've been a listener and a fan for so long because I love hearing about the the hard to talk about conversations. And I think it's so important to be open about it and talk about it because I feel like people want to talk about it or hear about it or just at least know that they're not alone, you know? Right, right. It, it's it's such a such an extremely personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and and I said this in the intro that you nor I are experts in this topic. We're simply yeah. two human beings as human beings dealing with dealing with it in our versions, and it's just like opening up this conversation. So. I just want to reiterate that because I think whatever we are putting out into the open, we're not claiming to be subject mm-hmm. matter experts or saying that like anything prescriptive, right? It's just really just a discussion. So I just, I want to reiterate that because I, in this time in content creation, in the age of the internet, right? Things can be misconstrued. And I don't, I don't think you nor I are coming from a place of, uh, 
you know, authority of like, oh, this is how it should be handled. Like even that, right. That's another layer of why it's even hard to talk about this openly because yeah. I personally don't ever want to be held to a certain level of accountability of like, oh, well, Minji said to do this. I'm like, bro, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out like the next person. Right. Yeah, So for sure. Absolutely. Just putting that out there. And um, again, so thank you for offering to like open up about your experiences. And I know that you had been um, sharing, at least with me, that you had been doing more research on it and understanding it from a more objective and like scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's stuff that I have yet to fully understand. I've actually, I, I did some like very, very superficial preliminary YouTube video listening mm -hmm. um, in, in the recent past and curious about just on a brain level, how that works in terms of dopamine yeah. or like our neurotransmitters mm -hmm. and how we get hooked on things because there's just to like, I guess, kick things off. I know one of the reasons why there's so much shame is that there's so much judgment placed on the person who is the addict, right? Even if you're not even consciously trying to judge that person. And even if you are that person, that judgment you put on yourself. Um, yeah. You know no, what I mean? And, like, that's real. and just to understand it on a scientific level, I was just like looking to you to like educate me yeah. on this and, and bring me up to speed to where you are. Well, I'll, I'll do a, I'll do my best in trying to summarize some sort of complex information. Um, and again, as Minji said, I'm not an expert either. I'm learning as I go, but I think it is really important to understand like what actually happens on a brain level, because it does take away a lot of the stigma and like demystifies, um, you know, what seems like such insane, irrational behavior and offers an actual rational explanation of why people become addicted and stay addicted. So the sort of key thing to understand about addiction is understanding our dopamine reward pathway. And that's in everyone's brain. It's this part of our brain that evolved through natural selection so that our brain would learn that things like food or sex were desirable. And, you know, obviously, because those are things that we need to do to ensure our survival. We need to eat, we need to procreate, right? And so when we do those things, it causes this sense of pleasure in our brain. It releases these chemicals called dopamine um, into this pathway and into a part of our brain that recognizes that this is rewarding and it motivates us to keep on seeking out those behaviors. Now, every single addictive drug basically acts on this dopamine pathway. And instead of it just being sort of a natural release of dopamine um, that you might get from things like sex and other things as well, like eating chocolate or, you know, hugging a friend or listening to a beautiful piece of music. Um, when you like on Instagram. Yo, that's a thing too. And I mean, even that's addictive for people too, right? Like they've actually been studying how... Um, social media addiction plays on the dopamine pa reward pathway as well. And there's other things right. as well, like gambling. If people are addicted to gambling, this, this the same process is going to happen where when you, let's just go back to drugs or alcohol. If you take the alcohol, then your brain is going to basically get this huge rush of dopamine. Like it's a very abnormally high amount of it. And that's mm -hmm. why we experience it as like so much pleasure. Like it feels so freaking good. We've never felt that good before, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not natural. And um, that's 
you know, the same sort of process happens where the brain then learns, oh, this is a good thing because it's getting this huge release of dopamine. It feels the, you know, the pleasure, it recognizes it as a rewarding thing. So, you know, it, the brain is like interpreting it as something that you should keep doing more of. And if you're somebody who is drinking repeatedly, 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 that connection is becoming more and more strongly reinforced in the brain. Now, the problem is, is that at the same time, the brain is always trying to counteract any effect that a drug is having on the brain um, with the exact opposite effect. And so if the brain is creating this immense pleasure, the brain is going to counteract it by basically producing the opposite of that, which is anhedonia or basic, you know, the inability to feel pleasure. And if mm. alcohol produces like all of this relaxation, then the brain produces the opposite, which is anxiety, insomnia. And it's not that the brain is trying to make you feel anxious. Like it's not like it wants you to feel anxiety, but it's just that it needs to maintain homeostasis, which I'm sure you, you know, I'm sure everybody kind of has heard that term, right? It's just this concept of balance and stability in the body. Status quo. Exactly. Right. And it, it needs to do that to protect us because if there's all of this sort of like chaos happening in the brain with like these crazy dopamine rushes, the brain can't really like have a clear picture of what's going on in the environment. Like it needs to be sort of at baseline and not have out, not have all of this sort of white noise so that it can be alert to cues in the environment that are really important for it to notice, like if there's a threat or something like that. So mm-hmm. any of these sort of like intense effects that the brain is experiencing, it doesn't like that. And so it's going to combat it. And in the case of alcohol, let's say it starts releasing these chemicals called, called dynorphin, um, that basically suppress like these feelings of euphoria. Um, the only problem is with that is that after like you're, you keep using and using the effects of the dopamine start going down. And this is about like building tolerance, right? So you need to have more mm-hmm. and more to just get the same effect, which you never really do. You never get kind of back to that same initial sort of high that you had. And then the withdrawal effects which are these feelings of anxiety and insomnia and whatnot, those start to come on sooner. They start to last longer. They start to feel more and more like intense. Um, So what do you do in that state? You, of course, want to just drink more because your brain has learned that when you're feeling anxious and, you know, life feels like it sucks, you go to alcohol. So it's a very, very vicious cycle. And, you know, the problem is that, um, the brain doesn't make the connection that it's actually the alcohol that's creating the anxiety because those effects happen much later in time. Whereas those pleasurable feelings that the dopamine is producing happens pretty much right away after you drink. And so the brain, you know, makes that connection really, really quickly. And, and so it's just keeps on getting reinforced the more and more that you drink and you just it becomes so easy to continue that because you're constantly having these withdrawal symptoms and then the cravings and then tolerance withdrawal cravings and just builds more and more. Oh, I, yours, I I just need to take, first of all, you're so well-spoken and (laughs) well-educated on this. I just appreciate you so much because I think having the ability to clearly lay things out Um, especially things that are so complicated and so nuanced and like scientific, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not, uh, 
it's not the simplest thing, but you made that so easy to understand. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, God, it, the, the bio geek in me is like, yee. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's, and it's a, and it's a tough subject. So it's, you know, not to just like be all jovial about it. It's no, a, it's no. a tough thing, but in, in a certain way, um, you know, before we go and like sharing like how we've dealt with it, there's a certain level of comfort that I'm finding in general with objectivity in, mm-hmm. in terms of science, right? Mm-hmm. To remove fault and blame and yes. I guess like a deficiency of character or that like you're just like not strong enough or you're not disciplined enough or you're not X, Y, Z enough, right? Which is the paradigm in which I've operated for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, in any way, in any quote unquote failure of mine that I, science helps objectify things. It's just like, yeah. okay, well, there's an input and there's an output. There, there are things and systems and mechanisms and neurotransmitters at play yeah. that are beyond like your simple willpower, right? Exactly. Like it's not just that easy for you or anybody yeah. to just like out the gate be like, hey, I don't like this. This is not good for me. I'm not going to do it anymore. There's actually a lot more at play. Um, so that if and when you are not living up to that wish or desire for yourself, that it's not a deficiency of your character. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really science. There, there, there are things that you're combating that are really reinforced in a very strong way. That's not so simple to be like, okay, well, I just don't like this anymore. I'm not going to do it. Totally. Yeah. I'm learning so much about that, that the willpower piece is like, that's really like your conscious mind, right? But this is all happening at the subconscious level and has been, I mean, it's so deeply ingrained in there by now that, you know, you know, subconscious is going to win over conscious, like, (laughs) hands Mm -hmm. down, like, Mm -hmm. that shit is powerful. And, And same thing with trauma, right? Like, I know you're learning a lot about trauma too, right? It's the same thing about how our traumas form they form at that subconscious level right and so when we're just trying to tell ourselves oh just think positively and you know don't you know it's again we're trying to combat subconscious with conscious and I think sometimes those things are helpful you know like doing positive affirmations and whatnot but it's not the whole picture and if that's all you're going to then you're missing like a huge piece of where the problem actually needs to be addressed right right so you're just gonna like try to address a problem. I don't know what a proper analogy is right now because my brain has like COVID brain, which I just say is like, it's fuzzy, but basically you're, you're using the wrong tools or you're not using the adequate tools. You Mm. need a sledgehammer, but you're trying to do it with like, you know, the back of a fork or something like it's not going to (laughs) work. You know what I mean? Um, you need the, you need, you need to know how big or how significant this problem is so that you can address it with the right Mm -hmm. strategy basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I think that's such a really wonderful scientific understanding of the science behind it. And, um, I guess my question in general, and and I would love to get your thoughts on it was like, I don't know what qualified as an addiction because Mm -hmm. I didn't really fully understand the science behind addiction in and of itself. Right. Right. There's, there's so much terminology sidebar, like there's words, which I think words are important. Right. And there's words that we misuse all the time. Like the word literally, I'm just going <laughs> to take this tangent here. 
literally means actually doing something. So if I'm literally banging my fist, it's because I'm actually banging my <laughs> fist. When people say literally, I'm like, you're not literally dying. You're, yeah. you're not dying. Like, well, <laughs> philosophically, we could say we're all dying because we're all going to die eventually. But you know what I mean? Like, so words, words matter. And so um, there's been a lot of fast and loose usage of the word addicted, right? We use that yeah. for like, I'm addicted to blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's just like how we say, oh, I'm obsessed with blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, in understanding now that we're actually looking at it in a more specific way, I've always just wondered like what qualifies as an addiction, right? Is it, is it a certain level of, like you're saying, like lack of control of it? Like it mm -hmm. now controls you? Yeah. I think addiction is really characterized by that sort of like, uncontrollable like the person uncontrollably like seeks the drugs or they engage in those like harmful levels of habit forming behavior is one way that I've read about it um it is characterized by that like tolerance tolerance withdrawal craving cycle mm. um, I'm not exactly sure um if there is a scientific like standard sort of like th these are the criteria that you have to check off. I do know that there's something called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Disorders, the DSM, and that's been around for a really long time. It's what clinicians and doctors and other like professionals use um, to sort of diagnose somebody as having a mental disorder, whether that's anxiety or what they now call alcohol use disorder. It used to be called other things like alcohol abuse or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Schizophrenia, like all these different mental disorders, they, they're in this sort of manual that have actual like diagnostic criteria. And if you meet like a certain number of them, perhaps, or it's within a certain time frame, then they would diagnose you as having that particular thing. And so you could be diagnosed with having, say, an alcohol use disorder, Mm -hmm. um, which also is on a continuum, like you could have mild, moderate, severe, but addiction is a really, I think, difficult thing to sort of define. Um, but it is, it is defined by, it is characterized, sorry, by that cycle for sure. The tolerance, the withdrawal and the craving. And one thing I didn't mention about the cravings was that, um, the other thing that the brain learns while it is making the connection between, oh, the alcohol and the dopamine, and so this is good and I got to do it, is that it also starts storing memories of the sort of like events or circumstances that happen around the take, like the drinking of the alcohol. So mm -hmm. it could be, um, okay, I see the liquor store. I know the alcohol is coming. I see the wine bottle. Like, I mean, oftentimes, of course, it's like you see the drug and, you know, the, the drug is coming. It could be things like even the time of day. Like if you're always having a drink at like the end of the night at 10, that time comes after so many instances of that, the brain comes to know that it's coming. You know that um, Pavlov experiment with the dog? Mm -hmm. about the uh, salivating dog or like the bell Is yeah the bell? so he rings the bell he um gives the dog food and the dog obviously starts salivating when he sees the food or she sees mm -hmm. the food and then pavlov keeps doing this over and over again until the dog comes to associate the ringing of the bell with knowing that it's going to receive the food so that after so many times pavlov just has to ring the bell 
And the dog will just start salivating, even if the food isn't even there yet, because it's mm-hmm. made that association. The same thing happens with the brain. It starts connecting certain cues. So it could be environmental cues. Like I said, seeing the wine. For me, it's like if I see people drinking, other people drinking, and this is why right now, like I can't watch any shows where I know the characters are always drinking like wine or scotch, which are like my favorite drinks. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to start like bringing on that association in my brain. It's going to tell my brain, oh, the, the alcohol is coming because usually that's what it's used to. Right. And it'll bring on like, I mean, I don't want to really compare myself to the salivating dog, but it kind of feels that way. Right. right. It's like you're anticipating that, like you're craving that and you think it's going to come and you can't wait because you know, the dopamine rush comes after that. Right. Um, well, the crazy thing is, is that the brain gets so good at learning what's happening and it adapts so well that it actually starts bringing on like those opposite effects that I talk about, which, which basically like are the withdrawal symptoms like of anxiety or whatever. It starts bringing that on as soon as it gets that cue. And it could also be like internal cues, like feelings. And so for me, it's like I always drank when I felt depressed or anxious or whatever. And mm-hmm. so the brain also made that connection that when you feel that way, you're going to drink, the drink is going to come and you're going to feel better. Right. Yeah. And so as soon as the brain sees that cue happening, um, it's already starting to bring on those counteracting effects because it knows it's going to have to, it knows the whole chain of events, right? Like mm-hmm. alcohol's going to come, it's going to produce all of these like crazy effects in the brain and that it has to like counteract them with, you know, the next thing. So it already brings that on. And so that means that not only are you like, I mean, I, sorry, if this, I, you're like the salivating dog. I mean, it sounds really weird <laughs> when I say it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, the analogy is cool. We'll go with it. <laughs> All right. And then on top of that, you're, or, you're also experiencing these very uncomfortable, sometimes very painful feelings of anxiety, of feeling this lack of pleasure and the alcohol hasn't even come yet. But so when you're trying to quit, this can be so hard because the cues are all around you and you're being like driven to this very like sort of depressed, like, you know, mess state where all you want to do is drink in that moment. So it makes this even harder to like fight off the urges and not go to the thing that the brain has been essentially trained to do, to go to as the solution to the problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, I guess I'm trying to like map it out graphically in my head, if you will, which nobody <laughs> can see, but it's kind of like the dip that you're already in is for like, you're in a hole and the hole has gotten mm-hmm. even worse that you're trying to climb out of. It's, exactly. that, it's, it's that much deeper and darker and uh, yeah. steeper and muddier and whatever um, that it was already difficult to begin with. And now it's even worse. Yeah. That's how my life felt. You know, <laughs> that's a really so, good analogy. It's, I'm really like, I'm, I'm through, I'm going through a flood of different coping mechanisms because yeah, th- there's part of me, um, because I'm trying to be more rigorous and I don't want to, I think it, it started sidebar of like why I care so much about like criteria is because, um, having gone through bouts of depression or having moments in my life where I, I do believe I was severely depressed and I Mm -hmm. dealt with, you know, suicidal thoughts and stuff as a teenager dealing with my uh, abusive ex and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then living in this world where we're a lot more open about mental health and we talk a lot more openly about feelings that used to have a lot more stigma in the past. 
it's kind of like a, it's a pendulum and there's more usage of words like saying that I have depression or I have anxiety. And, you know, some people there, there, there's issues with amongst certain people questioning whether something qualifies as depression mm-hmm. or anxiety, right? Because kind of like being a little too casual about that also takes away the seriousness of severity, right? Mm-hmm. And the the danger of real clinical depression. Not okay. See, see, even more yeah, like that. I real know. depression. I feel right? you. I feel you. It's yeah. hard, and so it is I. Hard. I'm sitting here definitely running through my laundry list of all my different coping mechanisms. And I'm curious and I really, really sat and wondered where have I had addictive tendencies? Because I've definitely had really self-sabotaging, self-destructive tendencies. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say amongst them, even like anger. I'm like, can you be addicted to anger? Can you be addicted to work? And like, you know, there's all these words like workaholic and things like that. You can um, be addicted to work, yes. Yeah, and 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 even when it was harming me, I just couldn't really stop. Like, uh, or oh, that's the other thing, and yeah. And, you know, all these things, yeah. yeah. Even when it's harmful to you or other people around you, you still will not be able to stop. Like that's very characteristic of an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because I feel like I wrestled with the same thing for a very long time, even up until literally a few days ago where I would feel like, is my problem, like, is this really a problem? Like, is this really that bad? You know what I mean? Because Mm. there isn't a lot of guidance out there in terms of like, how do I really know this is an addiction? How do I know I'm really dependent on alcohol? Because we just see a lot of like stereotypical images of what an addict look like, looks like. Right, and right. I was always like, well, I'm not that bad. You know what I mean? But that yeah. wasn't very helpful. And I would go and Google like alcohol addiction test and, you know, see if there was some way for me to like check off some boxes and put myself in some sort of category because that's what we're used to doing to try to make sense of things, right? But what I've learned recently in this current exploration of mine is that you don't need to tick off those boxes. You don't need a professional telling you that you are addicted to alcohol and like somehow confirming that for you. It's like, if you feel that you have a problem with your drinking, Mm. um, if you are probably going and Googling, like, do I have a problem with my drinking? (laughs) It's probably (laughs) a sign. But a lot of us do, I think, do this because we're just like, what the hell is going on with us? We kind of have this sense that there's something wrong that, you know, we probably should be cutting down that, you know, and I would say this to myself very, very often where I was like, I really wish that I didn't have to always turn to alcohol to solve my problems. Like I was very cognizant that I was doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're just already thinking that, like that is honestly enough for you to, you know, kind of identify that as being problematic use of drinking or whatever drugs or whatever thing it is that you may or may be addicted to. And you don't even have to term it that way. Um, But you know, I think that that's enough for you to just even take on that exploration, you know, take on, take a pause or, you know, just look into it more, educate yourself and stuff. And you might find, I mean, I am quite, I can say a hundred percent positively that my brain did become addicted in that way because of the way that I drank. And I think it, because it was so normalized for me at the time, and I was around a pretty prevalent drinking and drug culture, 
mm-hmm. that I sort of thought it was normal, even though I could kind of tell that my personal drinking was a little bit more like severe than other people. But yeah. there just wasn't anything for me to kind of look at. But I have I, found that you know what, I just kind of need to look at myself and what's happening in my life. And I can 100% say now that even when there's other people telling me that my drinking doesn't look problematic, that no, I have a problem. Like I have, I still use drinking problematically. And it's enough for me to, you know, really address the situation and to take a hard look at it. So I, I really think it's an, an individual sort of decision um, that they need to come to. I really, I really appreciate you saying that. I think, again, we're looking for a measuring stick, right? Or some sort of verification process to know, mm-hmm. because I think behind that, you know, the psychoanalytical part of me and what I'm recognizing in my own self in terms of facing my own issues or like this whole radical accountability and responsibility kick that I'm on that I really honestly it has been one of the hardest things in my whole freaking life and mm. it will probably continue to be, but, um, the value in it, right. The, the turnaround of like what it is added to my life and being able to face that yeah. it's really made me kind of just step back and recognize as a human being, not even like me, Minji and like putting myself in some special category, like, no, I'm just a person, right. As any person, I think I would imagine that no person's like really jumping at the bit unless there's some kind of masochist. <laughs> you know, that's the whole other thing to explore. But like nobody's really like jumping up and down trying to figure out all the things that are wrong with them. Mm-hmm. If anything, we're naturally inclined to be if somebody were to like hold a mirror up to all your ugly bits, you'd be a little bit defensive or like self-protect. <laughs> it's protection, right? Like you're trying to kind of protect yourself from the pain of having to look at these very Mm-hmm. uncomfortable, unpleasant, sure, unbecoming parts of you, right? Yeah. Because if you might see that in another, you might have some level of judgment or some level of, you know, why are you that way? You know, mm-hmm. why, why aren't you better? And then having that turn back on you and be like, well, why am I this way? It's a yeah. lot to digest, right? It so is. I just like leaving space. That's what I've been really trying to give myself some, some grace about, and this is an, um, this is over years, girl. Like it is, it is, (laughs) it's been a very incremental process to like genuinely look at all of everything and be truly forgiving and truly like compassionate to myself Mm -hmm. as critical as I can be to the outside world. (laughs) I am like, I doubled down on myself. Oh God. Yeah. I hear you. I know. But it's it's been a process too, like you're saying, to like pick it apart, step back from it, and to not make it all about like this this uh again, like personal character situation mm-hmm. and just look at it in terms of maybe more like data, just like ones and zeros. <laughs> this is what happens to brains when you introduce mm-hmm. X and Y into mm-hmm. the equation. And you know, as a person, what you're not super you're not a you're not an X-Men, you're not a freaking mutant. Like you're just a person like you are, you are just as susceptible and as vulnerable to X, Y, or Z as the next person. Exactly. Yeah. I totally resonate with that. And that has been, it has been very empowering for me to learn about the whole neuroscience of addiction and understanding 
what happened to my brain and why am I still like this? Right. Like Mm -hmm. you can, you can definitely go to that place of like, Oh my God, I'm so fucked up. Oh my God. Like what is wrong with me? You know? And I, I did, that was sort of like my dominant self narrative for so long. Right. But this is very empowering because you do realize just how powerful this addictive drug is. And I don't blame myself at all for getting into it because when I look at all the struggles I was having at the time, it really felt like there was nothing else to turn to, right? It was just like, this was my escape. This was my saving grace. And for better or for worse, it was, it really felt like the only thing that was going to put a pause in my life and relieve some of like the crazy stress I was going through at the time. So I don't blame myself for that at all. And I think that having this knowledge now also does, as you were saying, like helps to relieve some of that shame and to just have a little bit more self-compassion because, and I always say this, that shame isn't even the issue at hand. Like there is an underlying issue there that is the thing that needs to be worked on for me, the addiction, um, you know, maybe relationship issues or whatever. But when you have that shame, like overlying that on top, Well, you're spending all your energy and thought process, like just being so consumed by those immense, you know, often awful, awful feelings of shame that you can't even get to the real work, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So I think the the more that we can do to kind of move that shame along gently and as quickly as possible, you know, like it's going to always still come up for us because we're human. But I think the more that we kind of learn to to deal with that, um, the more that we can kind of like move it aside um, and then actually just get to like the root thing at hand that we're we're trying to work on because that's already hard, man. <laughs> I I love how you put that is so real. That is so <laughs> real because like you're totally right. There's the root thing. There's the issue at hand. But mm-hmm. you're like just swimming slash drowning slash yeah. like fighting <laughs> off. All yes. this other garbage that's mm-hmm. like, which is shame and guilt and, and yeah. just anger and frustration and, exactly. and lack of motivation, even in like hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And like, there's just so many mm-hmm. different, uh, I'm just thinking of like, I'm thinking of like the blob. I'm thinking of yeah. like tar, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like literally sticking to you and it's holding you back from reaching this initial destination, which mm-hmm. is, I want to start addressing the thing that made me, that brought me here. Exactly. <laughs> and you're not even able to get there because you're trying to get through this yeah. sticky, black, oppressive, like whatever, you know, mm-hmm. consuming thing mm-hmm. that's already in, that's a huge obstacle in the way. So I love that you framed it that way. I think that's, I resonate with that a lot. I think that's a very um, real way to put it. And I'm curious, like mm-hmm. on the cultural aspect part, because, you know, we've, my podcast has become largely an Asian American haven of discussing all these like <laughs> cultural cues and traumas I that, you know, I, I sometimes like can be very jokey about, but you know, it's very real mm-hmm. and it's very, very relevant. And, um, just putting that out there as a disclaimer, I joke and I laugh, but like, I, it's coming from a place of love. I'm just saying, because we, so many of us have gone through this. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts and feelings, like what your analysis has been of that, because for me as Korean American person, I've had a lot of issues witnessing mm-hmm. this, this really, really rampant, like just yeah. drunk as like drunk AF mm. culture, yeah. uh, my entire life and how normalized it is to be just completely fucked up. Yeah. That that's like a normal part of life, that that's mm-hmm. how it's supposed to be. And I personally 
I drank to fit in and I drank because I felt like that, like literally as lame as it sounds to be part of like the mainstream culture and to be cool. Oh, that's not lame. That's everybody. (laughs) And I feel like I look back on how much alcohol I consumed a, in terms of financial, like, I'm sorry, just like girlfriend, we're trying to make a dollar here. And I'm like, how much money I wasted on alcohol and how much like quality of life. I didn't feel good. I would get sleepy. I'm a very big lightweight, you know? So Mm-hmm. And how many bad decisions I made. So like the actual cost and the consequences of me participating in something that I didn't even really like to begin with. Right. That makes me feel shameful. And that makes me feel cringy. And like, I'm like, oh God, like why? Mm-hmm. I'm getting over it. But yeah, in retrospect, it's all a little bit, ugh. but and I'm curious like what your, <laughs> what your conclusions and like what your thoughts have been about all of that because it's yeah. very relevant. Yeah, I'm glad you say that because I was curious to know, like, was that, was I the only one going through this in my circle of Asian friends and acquaintances? Because it felt like it was so prevalent, um, both drinking and drug culture. And and then, you know, when I, I try to look for people like speaking out on this, I'm like, nobody's talking. Like, am I crazy here? Was I the only one that, you know, kind of mm-hmm. came out of it like this? Um, but mm-hmm. obviously, I know that in our particular culture, it's like, we don't talk about that stuff, right? And there's a lot of shame. And there's just this sort of code of silence, I feel. Um, but for me, when I was like, um, in high school was when I started sort of developing a group of friends who were mostly Chinese, Chinese and Vietnamese. I actually didn't have a lot of Korean friends growing up, but mm-hmm. just the whole um, Asian community was, is very connected in Toronto. So if you were somebody who was going out like clubbing and partying, like you, you were just like, you just kind of knew everybody by like however many degrees of separation, like everybody was just connected with everybody. And you, you saw the same thing as you're saying, it's just everybody getting shit faced, um, going clubbing all the time. Asian, I don't know if this was for you, but I went drinking a lot at karaoke bars, like either Chinese karaoke bars, sometimes Korean, where Mm -hmm. you're, you're playing a lot of drinking games, like with dice or with, did you do that kind of stuff? Yep. (laughs) It's again, it's, it's a standard. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. I guess it's like even an unspoken thing that there wasn't even like, did you do that? It's like, well, how often did you do that? It wasn't even like, uh, did you? It's like, which ones did you play? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that's very telling of like what kind of culture that was. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I was getting into that. And you know what? I actually started drinking a little bit later than a lot of the people I knew around me. I think I was maybe even 18. And the legal age here is 19. I know it's like 21 for y'all, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm sure everybody there too started drinking a lot sooner. But I just remember having like fake IDs to go into the clubs and stuff. And we would always be going to these Asian karaoke bars. And I was going out like all the time, like even during the week, like during school, I was going out, I was clubbing like two times at least during the weekend. And I was just drinking a lot, like a lot. I actually have had a pretty high tolerance for a very petite Asian girl. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I drank a lot, was building up that tolerance, was around just a lot of people doing the same thing and other people were doing even heavier drugs and stuff. And so it was just so normalized for me. Um, I even knew some people who were like, you know, dealing and, and whatnot. And so all of that just felt very like status quo, you know, I found a sense of 
belonging in that because, well, unlike you, I actually loved drinking. And there was a lot of things happening in my life, um, especially as a teenager with my parents separating and my, my mom and my sister and my sorry, my mom, my sister and myself had moved out on our own and we were on welfare. So, you know, like during high school, I'm just trying to be a normal like student. I was also working a lot to help support. And I was very like angry and Mm. hurt by what happened with my parents' separation. I dealt with that very, very badly. I was starting to date a string of very terrible guys. Um, And so by the time I got to my first sip, I would think I was sort of like, you know, ready for that sort of escape from my reality. I was just a very, very stressed out, um, depressed individual. I cried a lot. I like, you know, I was always getting into conflicts with my mom and I, which to this day, I still feel very, very guilty about, but I'm working on that. Um, Yeah. So it was just, it was really a very challenging time in my life and alcohol at that moment it came in felt like my saving grace. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a, it's a, it's so because these are our coping mechanisms. I mean, for starters before it ever evolves to becoming an addiction. I mean, we're just looking for outs, right. As human beings, I feel like it's just, we're trying to find some sort of comfort and find a relief from the pain or from the anger or for the turmoil. And so in that way, it makes sense. Like you're, it's introduced to you as something of a relief. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a comfort. It's not dangerous. Even if theoretically you're educated through whatever dare program there was. Oh my God. Or mad, like mothers against drunk driving. Mothers against drunk, like we had all sort of like, and there's so many different ways that people have, um, you know, try to mitigate these behaviors. Like that was like a traumatic, you know, like, Hey, we're going to show you your friend's dead on campus. Like that literally happened in high school. Yeah. Every 10 minutes, like there's a teenager who who dies from drunk driving. Um, and people were like crying and stuff. I wasn't as personally affected by, I was kind of sad, but like Mm -hmm. those, that's just a tactic was people are trying to like the older adults who know are trying to prevent you from even initially participating in this behavior because there it is a slippery slope and you can get into that peer pressure and then just self-medicating behavior. But it's just like in a very simple way, I think it's, there's, it needs to be said like, yeah, we turn to it because you're like, oh, this is going to help me feel better. And that's Mm -hmm. why you do it. It's not because you're like, I'm trying to be bad, even though there are some, I mean, like really the rebellious children out there. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to do it simply because you were told not to. And that's like a similar personality type, I think. That was me with, I think, smoking. I was oh. I was a very rebellious kid. And I, I just wanted to do things that I think felt like I was breaking out of like my very sheltered childhood. Like I hated being sheltered. It, I wanted to go and experience the world. And I, you know, I mean, it's kind of sad that I say that because I did definitely go experience the world. I feel like I lost my innocence so young. And I, you know, I just had to grow up so quickly. And yeah, like, but feel you 100%. I mean, that's literally why my Me Too story exists, really. Like, so my that's what I've recognized in myself in certain ways, just seeing like, objectively, I was like, I don't I don't think I have a inclination for substance Mm -hmm. abuse. Like, I've, 
I've smoked and I've drank and none of those ever really stuck to me. Those weren't my particular vices, but my vice was men and my vice Mm -hmm. was dating or romance or sex or like just that part of me always longed for more fulfillment. And I mean, that's, that's really the way I rebelled. So, you know, that that's why I'm so curious and baffled at like how expansive like human behavior is because there's so many different ways to self-medicate that you can take anything and think when it kind of goes into that addictive territory that like you don't have control and it becomes like an involuntary uh you become a slave to it yes and that's really real and it and it, it can come in so many different forms and I think us even having this conversation about expanding what those definitions or what categories of addictions can exist even beyond the the stereotypical of like substances mm-hmm. um or sex or like i mean like there's so many more people that talk about like porn addiction or they talk about like like you were saying like with gambling or with um even just work and money like i there's so many ways right there's so many forms yeah. that it takes yeah. and in general i think the the common denominator is that it becomes it's you're seeking relief from something initially and then it just it spirals a bit out of control yeah. so that now yeah it's not a choice anymore it's like you need it in order to feel some semblance of normalcy yeah exactly and there are people who are more susceptible to becoming addicted to whatever it is you become addicted to mm. um and half of it is about like half about half is genetic factors and they don't know exactly which specific factors like there's so many different genes that are involved in it that might contribute a little bit here and there and then pe- people have like many genes that might contribute like protective factors so that all is a bit of a complex blur but we know it's about 50 percent genetic and then 50 percent environmental which also is a very complex thing, but you can look at it. There's this guy named Dr. Adi Jaffe who does work in this sort of alcohol recovery field. And he looks at it in terms of like four factors. So there's biological. um, And so that's things like you're very impulsive. You're sort of like a sensation seeker, risk taker. um, Mm. You have a very high tolerance to punishment. Um, You might actually be somebody like if you've had um, parents or maybe grandparents who've had addictions, you are more likely to become addicted as well. And there might be mm-hmm. certain things that kind of get passed down genetically to mm-hmm. make for that. Um, and then the second factor is like psychological stuff. And I guess that could be things like our traumas, um, maybe anxiety, depression, that type of thing. Although the more I learn about trauma, the more I understand. And I think it kind of like blurs over into the biology kind of piece of it. Uh, right. Again, not an expert, but um, there is that. And then the third thing is environmental. So, you know, things like being like having like access to these things, um, being around a sort of culture that really promotes and even glorifies, say, alcohol. Um, there is that. And then the fourth thing is spirituality, which was an interesting one when I heard that, because, um, you know, it's not to say that, like, if you believe in God or you you are religious, that that's going to kind of like preclude you from becoming addicted to something. But I guess it could be a protective factor. Um, I am not religious. um, But I find that the more that I do kind of have a spiritual practice, um, Mm -hmm. that that does actually serve as some sort of protective factor. So, you know, for me, it's really like connecting with what I would refer to as like my higher self, 
my intuition, you know, however you want to term it, like, you know, maybe some people will call it source, or, you know, they just understand that there's kind of a, a bigger thing out there. And for me, it's all about sort of serving this aspect of me that is higher than like my ego or my egoic mm-hmm. self, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that part of me is like the more that I've become connected with that through all of the self-work that I've been doing the past few years, you know, it's like even something like the fact that I've really become connected with my value of honesty, that is something that is so important to me um, that I actually look at this whole exploration of looking at my current relationship with alcohol as like being like being honest, basically, because for me, honest is not just if you ask me a question, I'm not going to lie to you. And if I ask you a question, I expect you to, to not lie to me. It's it's when the question is not even asked that you are going mm. to say the, the hard thing, you know, that mm-hmm. needs to be said. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's saying it to yourself, you know, you know that that can be like sometimes the hardest thing, as you were mentioning, like even earlier on, right? And so yeah. here I was doing all of these honest things. You know, I've walked away from an eight-year relationship with like my fiance, like before I was supposed to get married. I've walked away from an eight-year career that I, you know, shed blood, sweat, and tears over to go and not not even really know what the fuck I was going to do is just like, I need to live more of my life in nature. I know that that's what makes me happy. And I made that honest decision. And here mm-hmm. I am making all of these honest decisions. And I think to myself, like, well, I'm still using alcohol to like numb certain things that I don't want to feel to, you know, and, and I was like, well, if I just keep doing that for the rest of my life, there's going to be this part of me that is not being lived as honestly as I could be living it. And that Mm. to me was like, boom, you know? (laughs) No, we're not doing that. (laughs) No, no. Because you said that you you were honest with yourself and were able to identify that because Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's a very conscientious part of you that I really respect because again, a lot of our lives, and that's the whole thing of like this awakening in the consciousness that is so scary, but it's like really mm-hmm. fulfilling in a lot of ways because when, you know, a lot of things I look in retrospect, a lot of things are done on autopilot, right? Like yeah. they're driven by our ego, by our subconscious. And so even the dilemmas that we get ourselves into, it was not, you were not trying to get into these sticky situations, but you got there. And like, that's why I think, you know, you have to face, you have to face the music. You have to face the consequences of said life that you are living. Mm-hmm. Be like, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah. Right. And, and accept responsibility. Like I contributed to it. I'm not a victim of life. Life didn't happen to me. I participated in the creation of this. Well, then conversely, like it's like, well, I can also participate in the creation of the life that I really want mm-hmm. to be honest about that and be honest that like, hey, if I want this, that means X needs to stop. This needs yeah. to no longer be the driving thing, my crutch, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's a tough, that's, and it can be that simple, like we're saying it very like, well, that's all you have to do. <laughs> and then, and then life, because you're saying like, even these, like the fact that it's 50% cultural, right? Like to understand that mm-hmm. mathematically is really, really significant. I think being able to say, hey, even if we're like ballparking it saying like 50% of it is genetic, that's real because that means you're, you're going, you're you're maybe fighting against your own DNA, which is a very big thing. And so then you just have to plan accordingly. But the other 50%, which is large, in large part, uh, a controllable c- 
component like mm-hmm. in our lives that's a big that's a big ass deal and it's a big thing to tackle right because when i just think of how many times even now like even during coronavirus i'm not going to name names but i was asked to participate in a drinking game zoom party mm-hmm. to support the asian community okay oh, really? and so i was like wait a second you know and it repeatedly comes up because i've already established with myself like hey drinking doesn't make me happy I don't care if it ostracizes me, makes me be like the lame one out that I'm not participating, blah, 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 blah. I've learned over time to own it and just be like, yo, I'd really rather not. Sometimes if I feel like it, also giving myself the space, like if you want a cocktail, like have one, go for it. Yeah. But I also know that comes with like, that means I have to plan the driving situation. I might get sleepy. I might gain weight. Is that worth the calories? I work really (laughs) hard to stay fit. Like, hell no. So usually I say no, but on occasion I'll say yes. But that cultural component is very real because the things that you have within your control are bigger than you might think. Like, oh, it's just fine. Then I won't. What are you going to do? Like suddenly not (laughs) hang out with everybody that you've hung out with before. Right. And like alter their entire culture of how they like to enjoy time, which is with wine bourbon and you know what I mean? Like I sold you and suddenly you have to remove yourself from your entire normal life because you've made that decision. It's, it is a big deal. I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm not trying to make the case that it's impossible. It's just, it's, it's giving space to recognize that these are big, big things. So it's not going to be perfect. I think I'm trying to make more space for that, that it's not going to be perfect or solvable in like one fell swoop. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, I honestly am a little bit nervous for when uh, self-isolation is over and I have to go back to socializing because it's going to be hard for me. Like, I know this um, because drinking especially is everywhere. Like, it is such an ingrained part of our culture and, you know, part of so many of our social events and and situations that it's it is pretty much inescapable. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, back to the point about changing your environment. I mean, this is something that I had to do in order to even start moving in that direction of trying to at least get a better hold of my drinking. Um, so I also had a situation like yourself, although of course it wasn't exactly the same, but Uh, being in a relationship with a very verbally and emotionally abusive boyfriend when Mm -hmm. I was in my early 20s. And, um, and I became very isolated and was only kind of in his bubble of like, his social circle and stuff. And Mm -hmm. that whole crew was very much into drinking all the time and also drugs. And they were largely Asian as well. And, um, And that kind of went on for, I was with him for, I think, two and a half years about. And then I broke up with him and I was still kind of seeing him off and on for another, like over a year. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I was also, I mean, I moved out of the house at 19, which was when I graduated high school, because at the time when I graduated, we still had something that was essentially like a grade 13. So I graduated when I was 19. I moved out right away because I was having so much conflict with my mom at home. And I took a year off before starting undergrad and was continuously drinking, got with the boyfriend, um, was going through that hell and um, was, you know, very much getting deeper and deeper into this sort of like party life and drinking and starting to 
try like other drugs and stuff. And after we broke up, I was kind of like jumping around to sort of like shitty housing situation after shitty housing situation, which also made for a very difficult, you know, time to like try and just regroup and to have some sort of peace and like a safe space where I could kind of try to figure out what's even, what am I even going to do? I was just constantly in survival mode. I was still very much having like tons of financial struggles and uh, just working my ass off all the time in undergrad, kind of like failing a little bit. I mean, I was still, I was still maintaining my grades, but I had always been very like academically smart and like always one of like the top people in my class and stuff like that. But when I was dating this guy, I mean, some of the things he would say to me is like, you're fucking stupid and fucking idiot and fucking pathetic and loser and all of these things, which of course, like degraded my sense of like intelligence and worth. And I was just so broken down by the end of it. And with Mm -hmm. everything else in my life that was going on, that, you know, I was just turning to alcohol more and more. I eventually started drinking at home by myself, like pretty much every day I had raging insomnia. I was stressed out, you know, all of these things. And it was when I very slowly started moving away from that whole life and those peers that kind of kept me sort of, you know, involved in that lifestyle that I could even begin to even see what a different sort of world could look like. Cause I started dating this guy who didn't come from that sort of, you know, social sphere. And I remember one time he was like, you know, you don't have to drink every weekend. And I was like, the fuck? Like, like, it was honestly so mind blowing that he would say that I was like, how the hell would I have any fun if I wasn't drinking? Like this was how deep I was into it. I know. Right. But you know, slowly but surely with him, things kind of like in my life started stabilizing a bit. I think the first two years, even I was with him though, I was still drinking quite heavily. And I part of the reason why I was drinking because I was having anxiety like almost every day over this relationship because I had such a huge mistrust of men at that point. And I literally every day thought this guy was cheating on me because I couldn't imagine a guy actually being respectful and trustworthy enough to, you know, treat me well. So every day, like I would be having these anxiety attacks and I would often drink at home by myself, like to just try and like calm down the the war that was raging on inside of my head. So it was definitely like a very slow process. And I do just also want to point out that things like my housing situation eventually becoming more stable and having like more financial security, like all of these things were really important. So I just want to not minimize that as being like a really important contributor. It's not just all like my individual will. And, you know, like, you know, sometimes you also need the things around you to be going okay. And sometimes those things are a little bit harder to sort of have for yourself in your life. But it is definitely, I think, a very holistic approach. And that's why I'm very much like, you know, you can't just tell people, just think more positively, just you know, if you if if you just believe it will happen, you know, sometimes people are in like dire situations in their life that, mm-hmm. you know, you need a little bit more support, right? Right. And there's different strategies too, depending really like kind of, I mean, I do, I do really think the compassionate part of me appreciates anybody's 
um, desire to want to even offer advice. I think that's them wanting things to be better. So that sentiment is appreciated. Yeah. But also making blanket statements for advice can be super dangerous because it can then also be very detrimental to the person hearing it if it does if really just is doesn't apply, right? Mm-hmm. Because based on where that person is and it, it sucks. It's it's a it's a it's a catch twenty two. It's a tough situation that you want support and somebody taking time to hear you out, give you advice is very supportive. So I was not trying to like necessarily say Hey everybody, let's stop like talking to each other because you're just gonna get it wrong. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but like that's like the part of like the listening and the empathy and kind mm. of really just being present to understand and uh, humble to offer advice, but understand that that advice may be wrong, um, mm. or to just really hear somebody out because their situation and whatever they're even volunteering to share with you. I would I would probably safely assume that it's just a fraction of the real picture, right? And there's so much more depth to it, which is why I do think getting a clinician, like someone who is clinically trained and equipped to deal with all of those layers, right? Yeah. And that is their job and their specialty to be able to walk you through that is so important. And this is coming from someone that was resisting therapy for so long. And I'm very grateful because I'm like, oh my God, I made it this far because I have such wonderful support systems in my life, right? I have my friends, I have my family. I'm so freaking lucky. And the amount of trauma and all the insanity that I went through as a as a teenager, there are people who've gone through less and and have, you know, honestly worse outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Objective. Like they're not even able to be employed. Like these are all interconnected, right? Like yeah. you are dependent on alcohol or substances or addicted to all these other things or just have self-destructive behavior. How can you hold down a job? How can you have a healthy relationship? You can't because they're all interconnected, right? So for that, I'm like just enormously grateful that I've had the support that I have had, but then I've also recognizing there's resistance that I had to getting um, not even like the complete help, but like that component of help that really I really did need. And yeah. now that I have it, now that I dropped my ego I kind of had to reach that limit, right? I had to be pushed to this limit. And that's what you and I were talking about in like terms of like dealing with a breakup and losing something so significant and feeling like I'm clinging on like by the edge of my fingernails. That's literally how it felt where I was like, I'm holding on to my sanity and my ability to survive. It felt like in that moment that I'm holding on by the edge, the very, very edge. And I could really like, I don't know what's going to happen if I can't hang on. But sometimes you get pushed to that limit to say, I need help. I need help. And um, that was it for me. Some, I hope that people can be encouraged to not have to reach that dire of a place and that dark of a place where you really, you know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of bad outcomes and ways that things can fall apart and unravel in a very bad way. Um, And I've dealt with that too. I lost one of my dearest friends, which I've shared on this podcast, um, to him, he was a opioid addict mm-hmm. and I was very, I don't know if I was, and this, I'm dealing with this in my therapy, but I don't know if I was like willfully ignorant because there were so many signs that I, I kind of feel like I chose not to acknowledge, but also he hid a lot for me, mm-hmm. but just to know, have someone so close to me take his life mm-hmm. in, in light of the darkness that he was finding himself in for a really long time. And that hurts me as a friend to 
find all this out afterwards in the aftermath and like just replaying a lot. There's a lot that I'm processing because of that. I don't ever want anybody to deal with that. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't want people to stay in that darkness, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like to talk about it and to figure out ways to get out of it. You know, there's, I really still at the end of the day, after all this darkness that I've experienced and witnessed and like know is out there, I really, really, where I choose to put my energy and focus is on our ability to overcome. It's on our drive and our like stubbornness to survive. Yeah. I think is really beautiful too. Yeah. It's hard as hell, right? (laughs) Um, And that's what I see in you too, Janice. Like I just appreciate that you're you're so willing to go there. It's willingness. It's courage. It's like boldness. It's determination. It's like, no, honey, we're not going backwards. We're only going, we're going to go through this and we're going to be on the other side. And that is very, very inspiring to me. And so I just want to let you know that. I appreciate that. And you are inspiring to me too. And, you know, I have found so much like comfort in hearing about your own stories and trials and triumphs like through all your podcast episodes. So, you know, I love that. And I feel like you bring hope, but like, even while you're talking about the hard things, um, you know, opening up that necessary conversation, but always having that message of like, yo, we're going to get through this, right? Like people are so fucking resilient. It, resilient. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, so the things that you can't, like I couldn't have ever imagined coming out of that life of just, like I honestly at some point felt like there was going to be nothing better for myself. You know, I was working all of these like, low paying jobs that had nothing to do with my studies. I Mm. I was drinking. I was like, you know, with this guy and, you know, I, I didn't have any examples in my life up to that point of like how my life could be any better. I I honestly felt like I was just destined to stay at the bottom. And then I think about the things that I've been able to do, like do my master's program and graduate like at the top of my class and, go on to work and do my career and volunteer for, you know, organizations helping like marginalized people and, you know, just go and do like music again and, you know, travel. And it's just, yo, like, that's crazy (laughs) to me. And it's also like, there are some people who are still stuck in, in that, that space of like, you know, not being able to see how their life could be more full and rich and, you know, to their, fullest potential and yeah. that like, breaks my fucking heart and it, it's why I I do speak out and I'm more than willing to share my story because I if that just like helps any person in that state know that there are other things that are possible for you then yeah. that's totally worth it because I felt so alone back then when I was there and I had nobody to turn to I mean social media was definitely not a big thing at that time and it wasn't, there just wasn't ready access to, you know, seeing other people going through similar things. And certainly there weren't people who looked like me, you know, and that's why when I even found your podcast, and that was like, what, two, two and a half years ago, I mm-hmm. still wasn't seeing people who looked like us speaking out on their life experiences and going through things that I was. And so I was like, Oh my God, like, I love Minji. I love this podcast. Like, you know? <laughs> I'm so honored. Like, and, and trust me, there was, there's a slew of people behind me that encouraged me to speak out too. Mm-hmm. Like I always had a burning desire 
Because yeah. I was like, I can't be the only one that cares about this because the stuff I care about, I care pretty fiercely about. Yeah. And that even in and of itself felt very intimidating and very naked and vulnerable to be like, I don't want to be out here alone, just like ranting and raving and um, essentially being judged or being irrelevant or whatever, you know, whatever it is, like having all these like fears and self-doubts. So it's it's really... It feels miraculous, but I just appreciate the fact that it's been in any way helpful to you or to anybody to feel less alone because I definitely felt that in spades as, as a teenager. I still feel it from time to time as an adult, but the way that I look at my aloneness now, now that I have a better sense of self is that that aloneness can be a strength too. Mm -hmm. And so that aloneness doesn't have to equal loneliness. And I think loneliness is such a huge component of these feelings of depression or anxiety or, or hopelessness that feed into self-medicating behaviors that feed into destructive, you know, habits mm-hmm. that feed into can downward spiral. Right. So it's when I like to step things back, uh, definitely and the, just looking behaviorally and objectively, like what are, what are tweaks that we can do that are manageable that mm-hmm. are, you know, it's got to be scrappy, you know, like that's the, that's the fighter in me, I guess. Or that's the, mm-hmm. even like the entrepreneur, like, okay, we have $0. How do we make this work? <laughs> right. And there's yeah. always a way. And, and, and I think, um, you know, people can feel, oh, I don't have money to get therapy or X, Y, Z. I think there are so many therapeutic means that we can do that can serve as an interim solution. Yeah. And, and if you set a goal of like, I would like to have enough money to afford therapy, like right now we're not swimming in money. It's coronavirus time, but I, I'm making some money from voice work. And I, I personally prioritize, I'm going to set aside part of this budget as a necessity of mine in order to stay afloat and be uh, sustainable is that I'm going to, instead of like looking at my therapy as a luxury, no, I'm going to set aside, I'm going to make sure I have the funds to cover that. Because to me, I look at my therapy as like a, a key, a key practice of mine that's helping me survive this well and yeah. continue to make money and to thrive and to build my startup and to continue putting out content. You know what I mean? I, I look at the input. I look at the output. To me, it's worth the investment, right? But yeah. even before that, I hope that people are exercising, like just going for a walk. I go for a walk as often as possible and just being in nature, obviously social distancing, but, mm-hmm. um, Things like that or listening to music that makes me feel good and feel alive and joyful. Like, I don't care how cheesy or anybody thinks I am. I love Celine Dion and I blast her until my neighbor complains because she helps my soul feel better. Yeah. And you really identify what those things are for you, which is awesome. And I think that, you know, everybody's so different, right? So whatever those sort of like grounding practices or those things that you might need to do to sort of like work through some of the issues that you might be facing are like those may look different for you. Right. So I think it is really an exploration process and a lot of people don't, I guess, maybe intentionally dive into that Mm -hmm. Um, because it can be a foreign thing. And I think things about mental health, they are just kind of starting to become more talked about in the social narrative but even still for a lot of people it's not really a thing and I know you're really into it and I've been so much into my self-development therapy is absolutely 100% something that's important to me 
But like you said, some people may or may not be there, right? But it's still there's always other things that depending on where you're at and what you feel comfortable with, um, you know, could help you to whatever it is, like just calm, calm down your nervous system when you're feeling anxiety, right? Yeah. Uh, what to do when you're feeling those senses of loneliness. I mean, I do, I will say that, well, I'll just talk personally, but I know that there has had to be some very deep inner work. Um, there has had to be therapy and kind of reprocessing like a lot of the traumas that have happened in my past as a big part of that work as it has been for you. Like it just, it wouldn't be complete if I were just doing kind of these other types of self-care practices, which are also very important. And for me, that might be journaling. It might be, I don't do a lot of meditation, but sometimes at night when I go to sleep, I'll, I'll listen to a meditation. Those kinds of things are also great. But sometimes I feel like going into the shadows, so to speak, and kind of tackling yeah. things that aren't as sort of like feels uplifting or whatever, but is also like so necessary for you to like kind of move past the things that are otherwise going to just keep coming up. Like it will keep kind of expressing itself as yeah. whatever it does for you. Like it might be anger for you. It might be like depression. It might be those feelings of loneliness. And that is the piece that has been the hardest, I think, for me to kind of tackle, even as much of my life changed externally and those environmental things were changing for me. A lot of those sort of like inner psychological stuff were still very much there. And as you said, it's such a process. Mm-hmm. And I think like accepting that and being okay, like this is, this may even be lifelong, but knowing and being optimistic that the more that you work on it, like I swear the easier it gets, like it really does. And, and that's been something that I've had to really work on it to manage sort of like the cravings mm-hmm. and stuff that will still come up with the alcohol. Because as I mentioned from like the beginning of this podcast, like, um, some of my cues are very much like the feelings of, depression, anxiety, and whatever. And I've always, I was, I would always turn to alcohol during those mm-hmm. times. And maybe as I kind of like got older and, you know, like started developing maybe better coping mechanisms and whatnot, I could kind of turn away from alcohol sometimes, but it's still very much there as like my trigger. So I knew yeah. I, to, I gotta, I gotta work on that too. So it's a lot of things, but I feel really, really hopeful and optimistic that it's all worth it because I've already seen like how much good has already come out of kind of diving into that deeper work. I'm so glad to hear that, Janice. That's so beautifully put. Again, <laughs> your your eloquence is like next level and it's really, really inspiring. And um I I I hearing that it, it feels like such a wonderful validation of my spirituality practice that I've been doing as well, just to know that it's something that you really value and that you've implemented and seen results from. I I feel the same way. Mm. And um, it's very encouraging. It's just encouraging to know that. And again, I I never assume at this point, you know, having years of experience of like trial and error and all the consequences, like you're saying, again, why I feel like it's so true that like you, you, it's like, okay, so you don't want to address it now. That's cool. That's like your prerogative. Also, mm-hmm. 
good luck. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? So I've had way too many iterations of unaddressed trauma, unaddressed issues that I have essentially put on the back burner for a number of reasons. You know, I'm a busy girl. I got a lot of things to do. Mm-hmm. And and it's manifested regardless and reared its ugly head. And it's just like, you know, that's life. It's going to, you got to learn the lessons until you freaking learn them, right? Till that lesson is actually learned, addressed and resolved, you're going to keep learning them. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's just like, it's also where I'm appreciating my impatience. Like, ain't nobody got time for this. Like, I have things <laughs> I want to do. I have happiness that I want to experience mm-hmm. there. I want to have a family. I want to spend time with my parents before they're eventually gone. And even accepting in the most like bittersweet, you know, morbid way, our time is very limited on earth. Right. And like, even me trying to come to terms with the fact that as I get older, time keeps speeding up, you know what I mean? And it's, it's flying by. And Mm -hmm. I really would love to spend as much of my limited energy that again, getting older is just like, I can't, I can't hang like I used to. I would love for more of those minutes to be spent in a positive way, you know? And and, and that, like, if the cost of having that, if the price I have to pay to have more of that awesome, peaceful, joyful experience in my life, if the price I have to pay is some uncomfortable prioritization of like therapy and Mm. meditation and like doing things that actually have become like my favorite parts of my day, Mm. like legit, the work quote unquote has become my haven. It has become my joy to like sit and breathe and take a breath and like visualize myself on a cloud or whatever it is that I have to do that used to be like the coping thing. And now it's like, no, this is my happy place. Leave me alone. Like just that has been super, super real. It has been mind boggling that it was always that simple, quote unquote, but I had to go through all these things to get there and it's never going to stop. It's not like I I fixed it and now it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things have been so eye opening to me and I genuinely, I don't know, I'm just about efficiency right now too. That's why I went to hypnotherapy. I was like, yo, go straight to the oh, subconscious. Nice. How was it? I'm not, I don't even want, it was so great. It was so oh. great. And um you know, it's not the end all be all. It's not like, oh, you do hypnotherapy and like you fixed, exactly. but it is very powerful. I do meditations. I do um, frequencies. I listen to specific binaural beats and frequencies because for me in my uh, scrappy entrepreneur, like efficiency mindset, I'm like, yo, go straight to the root of it. Like, let's just clear all out right now. I'm not trying to waste any time here. So I'm like, <laughs> take no prisoners. Do all the things. What do I need? Do I need sage? Do I need uh, <laughs> Palo Santo? What do I need to do? Put salt <laughs> in the corners. Whatever I have to do, I'm trying to clear this negativity out. I really want to resolve this because I really want to be happy. And in the process, I'll continue to have these conversations with people like you so that we can support each other because it's going to be, it's a journey, right? It's a, oh, it's a process. Yeah. I feel you so much. Like you don't even know how much that resonates. Like I'm almost 38 right now. I feel like I've lived four freaking lifetimes already and I'm kind of tired and I'm like, I am exhausted. You know, I think, oh my God, I got to do that at least one more time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel you. It's like, I don't want to live the next, you know, the next go around with all of that baggage, with all of those really 
uh, you know, unhelpful patterns. I don't mm-hmm. want to keep going through the same cycles. Because yeah. That shit is tiring. And it's, it's like you're saying, like, I honestly do feel like time is running out and it isn't in a morbid way, but I'm just like, life is really short. I personally don't believe in the afterlife. So I feel like this is the only chance I have. But yo, even if you believe in the afterlife, like, you still got to live this one. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> We're not done here. So yeah. And I, still. yeah. And, and after doing all the reflecting and understanding how a lot of those things and the ways that I have been operating aren't really serving me and have led me to more pain and grief and all of that is like, right. all right. So like you said, I am willing to do this massively uncomfortable work. And I mean, that may mean that I'm going through this period of time where life doesn't really feel that great. It might even feel a little bit worse than it might that it might have been if I wasn't in it because I would have just been going on with my usual life, having my drink every once in a while and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Not facing all of the the things and feeling all the feels because I don't have my coping mechanism. But mm-hmm. I know that this is what is necessary for me to come out on the other side and then move forward with, you know, a little bit more freedom and you know, yeah. more happiness and these things that I honestly feel like I haven't really truly experienced, like, especially in my adult life and even in my teenage life. And I'm like, yo, I deserve that. I, and I owe it to myself to, to do that. Because as you said, you know, it may not be your fault that these things happen to you, that traumas happen to you, that you even got into addiction and stuff. But now that we're here, we have the responsibility to ourselves to, yeah. you know, address it and do what we can. And I say that very, very like compassionately because I, of all people, like will always be the one to say, like, if you're not ready to, to do X, Y, Z, then you're not ready and you're not there because there was once upon a time where I was not ready. I wasn't ready for therapy. I wasn't ready to like face my demons and stuff. And I, I know how scary that can be. And you know, if you kind of go into it the wrong way or feel forced into it, like that could actually be traumatizing in and of itself. But yeah, I just do think that we do have a lot of sort of agency in how we can now go about these things, how we can now work towards like unlearning a lot of the patterns. And like you said, building like a better life for ourselves. I love it. I love it so much. I love that you use the word agency. Because that's something that I'm really definitely sitting in, um, in an empowering way. And that's one of the things that I really want to empower others with is to remind everyone of their own agency in their life and that it is within your power, within your choice to do things even on a very microscopic level and incremental level and in iterative format, like, you know, just do it, lather, rinse, repeat. You're never going to get it right on the first time, but you can keep working towards things that really do make your life better. And it's not just about like you, the individual for me. I also, what I was, I want to also add to what I was saying earlier is that it's not just for me to like feel me to feel happy, me to feel joy. It's also the consequence that I've hurt a lot of other people along the way. And that's something that I carry with me and that I'm trying to work on forgiveness. The forgiveness thing is a really, really huge component of the work I'm doing. And it's very hard, but, um, I, I don't want to carry that weight with me either. And I want to be able to forgive myself. I want to forgive others for hurting me. And I want to genuinely take responsibility for the pain that I inflicted on others because I really just want to live in harmony. And as zippity doodah kumbaya as that sounds, 
that is my ideal form of happiness is harmony and collaboration and, you know, not collaboration with the K, even though I love collaboration (laughs) with the K, but collaboration with the C, like working with others and being interdependent with them and not having so much pain and drama and conflict and, you know, Mm -hmm. further trauma, trauma that I'm inflicting on somebody and others. Like I have done things to hurt so many people and I just don't want, like, again, ain't nobody got time for that. I don't want to be that girl. Right. Um, so I just love that you, you note that and remind me and us all that are listening that there's so much agency that we do have, even when it feels like we don't, that we're just like, again, the slave to the thing that we're like combating, but we can be patient and we can be determined. And like, like we're saying, like, we'll get through it. We will get through it. It does take time and it doesn't always look pretty. I mean, I've been crying a lot these days (laughs) I've been like so I actually haven't been drinking for just over a month now and the reason why this all even came about was because as I was going into self-isolation more mode I was kind of worried about myself like the thing is that in the last few years my drinking hasn't looked as quote-unquote problematic as it did back when I was like a teen a late teenager to like my mid-20s where I was literally going out like you know, sometimes like every day of the week, like going drinking and, you know, then drinking at home by myself, like every day and that kind of thing, like my life started to not look like that anymore. But I recognized that I was still, you know, like not always able to just have the one when I said I was going to have the one and that I would sometimes, you know, drink way too much and have my blackouts and do stupid shit and hurt, you know, people with the things that I said and did and stuff. Um, And that I was very much still triggered by a lot of these cues that I talked about, right? And so as I was going into self-isolation mode, I knew I'm going to be by myself physically. This could last for months and months. I don't know. I was like, if I have like wine in the house all the time, I can see myself just kind of like casually dipping into it like every day kind of thing. But after a while, I'm probably going to come out of this thing pretty dependent, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and so I was sort of watching out for that. I was going through a lot of stressful days and I found myself needing to like force myself to not pour a glass sometimes, which again, signals to me like, holy fuck, like I need so much willpower just to convince myself not to drink, you know? And Mm -hmm. sometimes I would succeed, sometimes I wouldn't. But this one day, um, I think it was April 11th, I just said, fuck it. And I just drank and drank and drank until like two in the morning and I was crying and I was just you know, feeling terrible emotionally. And I woke up the next day, I was obviously hungover, I felt like crap in all respects. But I was also like, okay, this was the shit I was afraid of. And it's happened. And I decided I was going to take a pause at that moment and be like, I need to explore what is my actual current relationship with alcohol. And again, it goes back to that thing of where it can be very confusing about do you really have a problem? Like, am Mm -hmm. I still as addicted as I was back then? You know what I mean? Like, I just felt like I didn't really have an answer that I couldn't fit into a nice, like little categorical box. And I just started to do a lot of education. And I had kind of already known a little bit about the neuroscience of addiction, because I had worked in the criminal justice field um, before. And but I was diving into it a lot more and learning about alcohol specifically. And realizing just kind of what had happened to me and what was still happening to me. 
And also just learning that you can actually be changed, like your subconscious. And it takes time and it takes work and it takes not drinking for a while. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I, I have very intentionally not said at the outset that I'm never drinking again, because I know if I say that, while my brain still believes that I must have alcohol in my life, like I honestly, like just to be very honest, like I feel like I can't really live without it. Like I can't imagine a life without drinking. Like that just doesn't sound as great to me. But I now know I think that way because of this a, a dependency of, of like the things that my brain has learned at the subconscious chemical level, right? So mm-hmm. I at least can kind of like observe what's happening um, on a more objective level and understand these things. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm on this journey. I'm taking a course right now. That's sort of my therapy at the moment. Um, even though I haven't committed to like never drinking again, and definitely because I think if I say that, I'm just gonna kind of shoot myself in the foot because it sounds so absolute. It sounds like, you know, it sounds pretty impossible to be honest at this point. So if I feel that way, if I really believe that, well, I'm going to just give up, right? Like, I don't even think I would have made it to whatever today is day 32 or day 33. Um, because if I had a bad day, I would have been like, okay, well, who am I kidding? Of course, I'm going to drink again. So let's fuck this shit, right? <laughs> yeah. To it. So I've been kind of strategic in that. But I, the more that I'm learning and every single day, I'm like, doing this course and just bring more education into my mind so that my subconscious is actually learning all these things and changing the beliefs about what I, you know, perceive alcohol to be in my life. Like, and so I think that after several months of this, and I, it, I've learned that it does take six months to even up to a year for the brain to kind of normalize, like without mm. alcohol in the system. So I, you know, if I have to commit to that, then I'll commit to that, right? But mm-hmm. I've just been kind of gentle on myself and just taking it day by day and looking at it as an exploration. But knowing, again, going back to that value of honesty, if I'm being really honest with myself, I know that this is a problem. And if I'm learning that I have to do this to fix the problem, well, you have that decision to make then. Are you going to do it or not? And if you don't, well, you know where you stand on that. You, you know what's the right thing to do. And if you're not going to do it, it's like, that's on me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. And I think that, again, kudos to you, because I think that takes a lot of courage. And I, and just for me, in terms of the things that I've been dealing with, um, besides just identifying, like, I love that you're just talking about giving yourself space and realistically addressing it, right? You're not like trying to delude yourself and come up with these like really big hyper hyperbole declarative things that realistically you know might actually counter your efforts um for me I'm learning how to ask my friends to like hold me accountable to things so I'm not just like and there's a difference between like I'm gonna put it on Facebook and everybody like hold me accountable to like not overworking or like whatever whatever it is right like I'll I'll choose people that I trust and that I know will look out for me Mm-hmm. And say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with in terms of my self-worth, my self-esteem. Um, please hold me accountable to this. Yeah. I'm like incrementally doing that because that's been a struggling area for me. But um, those are all just like little mechanisms. <laughs> Hopefully right. that will. And it's it, it's like building a web, right? You're just like building this 
you're weaving something so that it has the strength to hold you. Mm-hmm. And no one thread is going to be the singular thing, but it's if you put enough support, you'll, you'll it'll carry you through that moment and to the next and to the next. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you have that support of people you can trust as well. Because I think that's important too. Like, can you go to the people around you with these issues and for them to like not judge you? And if you were to tell them, hey, like I'm going through this thing, I'm not looking for advice right now, but it's just like, can you be here for me? Can you support me? Right. And just, I think just to have that sometimes is, is really like, I don't know. Sometimes I think that's a little bit harder, like what easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that's because I know I've been thinking a lot about this because like, I actually find it very difficult for me to talk with the people around me about this specific issue. And it's not to say anything about my friends because they are amazing. And I've talked to them about so many hard things and gone to them when I need to reach out and stuff. But I feel sometimes that because people don't really understand about how addiction works, I can often say things and then get a response that don't really align with the reality of that. And then mm-hmm. it feels like I have to explain myself and it's exhausting. And you know what I mean? So right. I feel like being, but sometimes I feel that it has to be you to take that initiative. Like I feel it has to be my initiative at this point to kind of tell people like, Hey, like I want to share this, but like, I'm not, I'm not looking for advice. I'm, I'm just, this is how you can love me in this moment. Right. That's just, good. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I've actually like increasingly, I've heard of more of friends who are saying, uh, hey, this is something I'm dealing with. It would really help me if, you know, mm-hmm. FYZ. Like even, not even in terms of addiction, but even like in, in an environmental thing of um health situation, like a friend who's been pre-diabetic, right? They're like, hey, I, it sucks for me, but I can't eat the same way that I used to. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I can't, I'm staying away from alcohol. I'm not going to do like boba and sweets and like, you know, they need to really look out for their health. So they're, in their way, how the, the way in their communications plan, if you will, in their press release. Um, and it's smart. I mean, that's so smart and so healthy. And I'm like, absolutely. If you're a friend, you're going to do whatever you can to be mindful, to not, you know, dangle things in front of their face. Be like, Hey, do you want this pizza? Like that's, that's so <laughs> fucked up. And so I think it's, you know, the ways that you can, it's just figuring out your strategy and your way to like, help yourself and let the people who care about you help you too. Right. Mm -hmm. So I really respect people who can ask for that because it is very vulnerable. I am working on that. (laughs) But (laughs) Kudos to you to like sit there and like take the time to identify it even. That's I think really important. So thank you. Yeah. Janice, I appreciate you so much for taking the time and like everything, the energy to sit and talk about this with me and share your story. Oh, I just thank you for I appreciate giving it. me the space to do to do that. And I really want to like reinforce to people that this is just my one story. I mean, everyone's so different. People mm-hmm. who are going through alcohol dependency or drug dependency or whatever, like your situation might be so different. So I'm not prescribing like what I'm doing is what you should be doing. Like I really hope um people like know that, but just to maybe like take it more as like there's hope, you know what I mean? Like where yeah. there's like darkness and where you feel like you can't find a way, like your life is so worth fighting for every day. Yeah. Oh, go try not to cry right now. You oh. are fighting for every day. You are, you really are. Um, because you have 
magic inside of you and you have like the fullest life that you can possibly live and it's it's there waiting for you if if you're not feeling that right now so I just want to you know I want this more to be an encouraging story versus like here's what you need to do about your addiction you know absolutely I'm I mean I'm I'm very encouraged and inspired to again just people are fighting demons left and right right we have our, our different um different baggage and our different wounds that we're healing. And, and this is a f- one form of that. And it's, it's a very tough road to walk. Um, but I definitely think that was your mission. I, I personally, as host of, first of all, I'll say mission <laughs> accomplished. I think it's really inspiring. And um, yeah, where, if people would, do you want to share your Instagram yeah. or anything? If people want to follow you and. Yes. So you can tune into my podcast at the soulsworkpodcast.com buzzsprout.com or find the Soulswork podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. And I'll be continuing this conversation about my journey with alcohol there, plus other self-development topics more generally. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Janice Ho Images and on Facebook at Janice Ho Creative. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, everybody, please give Janice a follow. More, more beautiful, encouraging wisdom to come your way from this woman. <laughs> and uh, I just really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And thank you to Martin Yui, my audio engineer and producer, for helping me bring this episode to the world. And thank you to Travis Atreo for use of his song Set Free for the intro and outro. And I'm a very proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, which is a collective of Asian American podcasters and storytellers. Please go check out some of the many amazing shows that are part of that collective. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, would love to have you there. Um, you go to patreon.com slash first of all podcast. You can email me at first of all pod at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at first of all pod or my personal page at Minjeezy. Uh, it's been quite a journey creating more stories and spaces for us to talk about deep things, dark things, and bring things to light because that's what I want to do is bring light and love. And thank you, Janice, again for being a great guest. I hope you have an amazing weekend week um <laughs> the rest of your quarantine we're gonna get through this together <laughs> yeah and thank you to everyone listening i hope you have a wonderful week and i'll talk to you guys soon bye because life is more than just a memory she said it's time i'm ready to go i'm leaving my tears on the side of the road because Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, We've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallspruce.com. Peace. Peace. Peace.